Is your money working as hard as it could be for your future? A decade ago, Robinhood changed the investment landscape when they pioneered commission-free stock trading. Today, they continue to offer innovative products to help users build a better financial future, like IRAs, ETFs, options for qualified traders, and much more. Take control of your financial future with Robinhood. Download the app or visit Robinhood.com to learn more. That's Robinhood.com. Disclosures. Investing involves risk. Other fees may apply. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIP. PC is a registered broker dealer. Good morning, Brew Daily Show. I am Neil Fryman. And I'm Toby Howell. Today on the podcast, why the fourth most popular website in the country has shut down in Utah, and the U.S. Surgeon General declares a new epidemic that has nothing to do with coronaviruses. Also, the hits keep coming and they don't stop coming for regional banks. We'll give you the rundown on the latest struggles there. Then we'll head to the sports world where Forbes dropped its annual richest athletes list. Spoiler alert, soccer players dominate. Neil, it's Wednesday, May 3rd. Let's ride. All right, so today, right after the show, Morning Brew is providing us with some free breakfast burritos. And I just revert back to my college self whenever there's free food. I, I feel it, like an animal. It's never not exciting. I don't even think that's a college thing. It's just very fun. <laughs> Usually we have bagels, so today is breakfast burritos. I love office culture. We've talked about this before, but we get some free food. It's great. It's funny for me seeing all these new Gen Z people experience the office for the first time, yeah. and they're just loving it, all of these new things. They're, they're like in a toy store. I know. I'm, I'm, about, I'm ready to dig in after the show today. Um, okay, let's head to our first story. So remember when I asked on Monday, Neil, if the banking crisis was over after First Republic was acquired? Well, (laughs) now we can definitively say it's not. Yesterday, shares of regional banks got hammered. So I'm going to give a quick rundown of the banks that um, did not do so well. PacWest finished the day down 28%. Western Alliance dropped 15%. And other banks like Zions, Commercia, and Key all fell between 9% and 12%. Sounds like uh, Big yeah. East Conference. Why are right these there? banks named like college basketball conferences? I don't when, know. When Pac West was falling, I was like, did Gonzaga leave? I know. Like, are they collapsing? It's truly funny. Um, so what caused this route? These banks have kind of been struggling with the same issue that plagued First Republic. All the banks I mentioned experienced net outflows in deposits in the first quarter of the year. PacWest saw the most with a 16% drop in deposits. Western Alliance had an 11% drop. Compare that to First Republic, though, who had a 40% drop, and these actually start to look a little okay by comparison. But what's interesting to me is that none of these banks actually reported earnings yesterday. It was more just a broad reaction to the general state of the banking industry. And so the question that people are asking is, do regional banks like have the wherewithal to survive like the coming months? Maybe not. I mean, Jamie Dimon went uh, kind of viral for saying that on Monday or Tuesday after he bought First Republic Bank is that pretty much resolves all of the banking crisis. And everyone was like, all right, well, if he said it, then maybe it's over. But he actually said something before that that no one else clued in on, which is that there may be another smaller failure on its way. So it just seems like investors are going from the weakest bank and then they're like, OK, we cause that one to fail. Let's go to the next one. Which one looks fragile? Like, let's yank, yank all our money from that because it could be the next one to fail. Right. It does feel like people were looking for our, yeah. who's, who's the next, hunting. next in line. And so the general consensus has been that the current state of the banking industry, banks with over $500 billion in assets, the big banks, they're going to do fine. We've already seen it. JP Morgan 
is coming out of this stronger than ever before. Bank of America, same thing. But then you also have the banks with under $60 billion in assets who will also actually do okay. These are the really small banks who aren't subject to as stringent of regulations as like these mid-sized banks. But that $80 billion to $100 billion assets under management, they are the ones getting wiped out because they have the double trouble of getting regulated because, of course, there's going to be tighter laws around how they can loan their money out after their recent crisis, and they just don't have the size to compare with, with the big boys. So It's your favorite term. Yeah, the, the messy, messy middle. middle the messy middle. It keeps coming back to it. Can I, can I pose a theory here? What if the U.S. has too many banks? <laughs> I know. They do. I, g- I gathered some data that shows just how many banks we have, okay? The U.S. has 4,700 banks and savings institutions. That's one for every 71,000 residents. So one for like a medium-sized town. Canada has fewer banks than North Dakota does. What? Japan has 4% the number of banks of the U.S. And this is largely the result of these laws where many states restricted banks from operating across state lines. And that was repealed in 1994. There's been some consolidation since uh, the 80s and 90s. But, you know, we might just have too many banks. It's like it's like unbundling and bundling, like with cable and yeah. streaming, we're, we're now rebundling all the banks back up. I know people are afraid of concentration and, you know, Monopoly, but this we're not even close to that. And it reminded me a little bit of what JetBlue was saying when it acquired Spirit, which yeah. is that we need to compete with the big boys. There's United, uh, you know, American and Delta, and we're just here in this messy middle. Why don't we combine together and create better, you know, it might be better for consumers if we just have, you know, six or seven mega airlines. And maybe that's kind of what we need in the banking sector. That I like your theory. I, I always like it's, your theory. It's not Joseph. particularly my theory. Is uh, you know some some economists. But you have came you came with out. you came with data, which I appreciate. Um, just looking forward real quick. Uh, there's a big Fed announcement this afternoon. Are they? Will they? Or won't they raise rates again? This is also going to affect the outlook on these regional banks because if the Fed decides to raise interest rates again, which it looks like yep. they will, um, it's going to become even tougher for these. Ba- these banks to hold on to their depositors. It's going to cost more. They're going to have to raise the right. the interest rates they are offering. So today, this afternoon, we're going to see another fallout, I think, on regional banks. So obviously an ongoing situation. Um, okay, let's move on. I love this next story, Neil. It's, it's very, very I'm dear. excited to hear what you have to say. I know. So I have a relatively long explanation. So our favorite short sellers, Hindenburg, are back with another report. So Hindenburg Research, they're the people who went after the electric truck company, Nikola Motors, India's Adani Group, and most recently, Block's mm-hmm. Cash App. So if you know that name, those are probably where you've seen it before. So yesterday, it published a report targeting Icon Enterprises, the holding company of the famous activist investor, corporate raider, Carl Icahn. So I love digging into these reports, and I did so over the last few few days. Um, I'll do my best to walk you all through it. So Icahn Enterprises, it's this $18 billion market cap company. It's a holding company. Carl Icahn and his son actually own 85% of the company, which is an important detail. The rest is owned by retail investors, the other 15%. So Icon Enterprises offers this gigantic dividend. Their current dividend is 15.8%. It's the highest dividend yield of any U.S. large cap company by far. The next closest is 10%. Hmm. So this massive, massive dividend. So Hindenburg was like, how is this possible? How can they offer this massive, massive dividend? 
is the underlying assets, it's a holding company after all, are these cash flowing in such a way that they can return cash to investors like that? So Hindenburg did some research. Turns out that is not the case. Icon Enterprises is trading at a 218% premium to its net asset value. So that means it's trading, the sum of the parts is trading at 218% more than what the individual parts are. So they're like, okay, that's not checking out. So where's this dividend coming from? They found that they're essentially running a Ponzi scheme. And so remember how I said that Icon owns 85% of the company? The other 15% are these retail bag holders. And basically Hindenburg said, in brief, Icon has been using the money taken in from new investors to pay out dividends to old investors. That's a classic, classic Ponzi scheme. So the market reacted, yeah. fell 20%. This Hindenburg looks like they've uncovered another kind of shady business shady practice. business model. Yeah. Find somebody to look at you the way Toby looks at a Hindenburg short it's seller. It's crazy. They, they, once they lay it all out, you're like, how did no one else <laughs> see this? Uh, maybe Hindenburg is... Are they the the best, like, investigators in the business? Truly. Like, they have a a sterling reputation because they really haven't missed so far, and it looks like they're on to another one. We should bring them on the pod. (laughs) I would love to hear their their strategy. Yeah. As you mentioned, yeah, Icon Enterprises slumped 20%, which was the, you know, biggest fall on record. And Carl, poor Carl, he lost 41% of his fortune. He went from 58th richest person in the world to 119th, and he lost more than $10 billion on his net worth on a single day after this report. And we saw this happen to Adami, too, after uh, Hindenburg went after them, or him. He, you know, he lost more than $100 billion in yeah, net worth. Yeah, his net worth was cut in half, and it's basically stayed that way. Yeah, it, it kind of goes to show. I really do think that once they laid this out— we're, it, it does seem like Icon has been artificially inflating like the book value of its investments and then just trying to, it, he has a good reputation. He's like very vocal, goes on TV and he uses that kind of flywheel to bring in new retail investors. The interesting tidbit is Icon Enterprises has no um, institutional in- investors. It's literally just Carl Icon right. and his son and then you and me like retail bag holders. So it, he can kind of manipulate the stock price a little bit by saying, hey, invest like me, invest like the best. Um, but it kind of, this dividend is perpetrated on the idea that you can just bring in more retail investors. The reason this story is juicy and even got a lot of you know publicity is that Carl Icahn himself is an activist investor. So it's kind of this one investor going after another investor who has done something similar in his career. So Carl Icahn came to prominence in the 1980s, known as this corporate raider who would target companies, buy up shares, and then kind of oust the CEO for major changes, put his own guys on the board. So he was this, you know, big activist investors. Now he's getting a taste of his own medicine. Bill Ackman, who is this other billionaire investor, tweeted, there is a karmic quality to this report. And that's due to this fight that Ackman and and uh, Icon had over Herbalife. Ackman took out a short against Herbalife that was worth $1 billion, betting on the stock to go down. Icon bet on the stock to go up, and they kind of like had a brawl on CNBC in 2014, I think. Yeah. So like, I don't, I was not at Morning Brew at the time. I was not really paying attention to business news, but that was kind of the, that was kind of like the Elon Musk of, of the early aughts was, uh, or the early 2010s was Ackman and Icon going after it. Yeah. So he, I- Icon, you know, big activist investor, the OG corporate raider. 
Logan, now is getting taken down. I this is I mean side note, but this is why I love Twitter is the fact that Bill Ackman can weigh in and quote tweet and like subtweet. Uh, these are billionaires like subtweeting each right. other. So pretty fun. Despite all the problems Twitter has, you gotta love that still. Um, all right, the corporate raider has been outrated. That is the first half of our show. Before we jump into the next story, we're gonna take a quick break. All right, Toby, if you look at a map of searches for VPNs across the United States, you'll see that one state stands out from the pack by a mile this week. That state is Utah, and that's because people need their Lisa Ann fix. Pornhub, <laughs> Pornhub and others, other adult sites owned by this company, MindGeek, shut down this week for people with a Utah IP address. Why, and it's a protest of new age restrictions that Utah just put on porn sites, they now need to verify that users are over the age of 18 and they're worried about compliance and being held liable. So they're just shutting down and saying, it's not worth it. So if you fire up Pornhub in Utah right now without a VPN <laughs> that says you're firing it up from elsewhere, then you'll be directed to a page where an adult performer issues a statement from MindGeek criticizing this law. Why does this matter big picture? Uh, because it's part of a wave of states led by Utah, which is very conservative, that are putting tighter restrictions on kids' use of the internet and social media to protect them from what lawmakers consider harmful effects on mental health and misinformation, all of that bad stuff. Yeah, this story has a lot of layers to unpack because yeah, the Utah law, it's aimed at making the internet safer, but Pornhub is basically saying you're going about it in the wrong way. The mechanism that the Utah law has for verifying users, they say is is not the right way to do it. They caught they want you to like manually upload a picture of your ID, which is just kind of a clunky way of doing age verification. And so Pornhub is basically saying that if you make it so hard to access our site, what you're gonna do is push these fringes, these people who are trying to access this content to kind of the fringes yep. of the internet. So they're basically saying you're actually making it more unsafe for kids because Kids will find a way. They'll, they'll just go somewhere else. Right. And so they're just saying, like, work with us. Let's get a better age verification system in place. Like, Pornhub already tries a little bit of age verification, but they just say, this is not the way to do it. So, like, let's find a better way because Pornhub obviously wants people to still be able yeah. to access their site. So they don't want to have it shut down indefinitely. So... This, it's it's gonna be weird. Like Mind Geek and Utah lawmakers working together. Uh, I, I can't I can't I can't picture it. I I have not seen the musical on that. <laughs> yeah. That's the sequel to the Book of Mormon, I think. Uh can we just talk about how the Pornhub putting up numbers? Oh my god. So more than seventy six million people a day visit in the US visit Pornhub. It's the fourth most popular website in the country and the thirteenth most trafficked one overall in the world. Two, two point, 2.5 billion US visits per month. Like unbelievable numbers right there. Yeah. So so let's move on to the social like the the other aspect of this, which I mentioned at the top, was that states everywhere, not red, not not just red states, red states and blue states, California, New Jersey, Texas, all of them are are passing and pushing through bills that limits kids' use of the internet. Utah is kind of leading the pack and they signed two first of its kind bills that will go into effect next year. This is one one of them bans kids from using social media between 10.30 p.m. and 6.30 a.m. So there's this social media curfew. It requires age verification for anyone who wants to use social media, requires that parents have access to their kids' social media accounts. So I thought I thought friending my mom on Facebook was <laughs> bad. And now that she has to, you know, have her... <laughs> this 
this reminds me of prohibition, does it not? Where like again, it's coming from a place of technically we're protecting you. Yeah, we're protecting you, but it just feels like it's gonna have these unintended consequences. And like especially kids, they're going to find a way like around these things. Right. They find like <laughs> life finds a way, kids find a way. So even though like on the surface, like yeah, I'm on board with banning social media. Like I'd love to ban myself from using social media between those hours. But I just do think that we're gonna see some nasty side effects from this that we we can't foresee right now i didn't know this but to, social media companies already are supposed to ban people 13 and under from well, accessing their platforms tiktok has remember they rolled out some of those things where you it's if you're under 13 um you you can only like watch only it limits your screen mm. time so there are some in place already but um yeah People can lie about their ages. Like it's not a perfect system. By you any, seem like any a chance. kind of guy that just skirt, who does not play by the rules. I, I well, I'm glad I'm not 13 right now because I probably would be being a little naughty online. I don't know. Oh God. Oh God. <laughs> mom, mom. Remember that you're on a podcast, Toby. <laughs> yes. All right. So this kind of dovetails with our next story, which is that the U.S. Surgeon General Vivek Murthy uh, released this advisory yesterday, warning about an epidemic of loneliness and isolation. So about half of U.S. adults say they've experienced loneliness. And you might be wondering, why is a doctor warning about loneliness? And that's because he laid out the very serious health risks of just being by yourself all the time. So the risk of premature death from being socially disconnected, he says, is equivalent to smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Sounds like a lot. And it's higher. It's actually higher than the mortality risk from obesity and a lack of physical physical activity. So what Murthy is saying is that being alone for an extended period of time can literally kill you. Uh, and it costs the healthcare system billions of dollars each year. Crazy. I mean, I, I also love that they always frame these reports in terms of cigarettes, like 15 right. cigarettes a day. Um, it is the comparison. That, du jour. Du jour. Um, also, I, I do want to just like uh, say that this has been met with a little bit of skepticism from the medical community because it's a correlation right. causation thing. Is loneliness actually causing these adverse health effects or are people with health issues tend to self-isolate more than, than healthy people? So there has been a little bit of pushback. But I mean, loneliness is definitely something that spiked during the pandemic. Like the pandemic really caused a lot of isolation. And now we were kind of discussing before the show, like, what do you do about this? Like, how do you fix loneliness? And I always go to, you need these third spaces. Mm -hmm. And third spaces are basically anything that's not your home or not your work. Those are places like parks, cafes, gyms, coffee shops. And then we have to talk about it. But the biggest third space, typically in American society, used to be like places of worship, yeah. churches. And that has obviously fallen over the last like decade or so. Uh, in 2020, only 47% of Americans said that they belong to a church, synagogue, or mosque. That's down from 70% in 1999. So clearly those numbers are falling. Yeah. But maybe anecdotally, are you hearing people going back to church or temple and being like, I don't really know if I believe in God or whatever, but I just want to be with people. Yeah. You know, it provides a community you know, reliably every week for, I don't know about like-minded people, but it's just people. And at a time when there's not so many other things to, to do as a group, I mean, playing sports is a big one. For sure. Yeah. I mean, the Wall Street Journal did run this article two weeks ago um, saying that young people are returning to faith a little bit. Yeah. It was a little bit anecdotal. Like they didn't have a ton of hard evidence, but they're like the, the headline news was 
in 2021, only a quarter of young people said that they believed in some higher power, and that went up to a third a few years later. So maybe we're seeing some of that, yeah, post-pandemic stuff shake out where people are, are believing yeah. God a little bit more. Damn, we started this with regional bank collapse, and I now, we're at, uh, now, we're, now we're at Divinity. <laughs> there we go. Um, get you a podcast that can do both. Um, all right, let's move on to the sports world. Forbes list of the highest paid athletes in the world came out yesterday, and a lot of the usual suspects were on it. Three soccer players, Cristiano Ronaldo, Lionel Messi, and Kylian Mbappe, topped the list, bringing in 136, 100 million, and 130 and 100 million, respectively. Then you had LeBron and boxer Canelo Alvarez, and then we get into some live golfers, Dustin mm. Johnson and Phil Mickelson at six and seven. Steph Curry, Roger Federer, and Kevin Durant round out the list. But I actually want to talk about the big elephant in the room when it comes to this year's list, the presence of Middle Eastern money. So there's a lot of different angles we can take into this. First of all, the, the two golfers on the list, Dustin Johnson and Phil Mickelson, they're part of Live Golf, which is backed by Saudi Arabia. They have no business being on this list. I know. They got a little chunk of change, change though, because they got paid. And this is only right. half what they got paid, yeah. by the way, half of what's up front. Um, and then Saudi Arabia also kind of bankrolls Cristiano Ronaldo's salary. He plays for Al Nassar in the Saudi League. And then Qatar owns PSG, which Messi and Mbappe play for. Messi's also a paid ambassador for Saudi Arabia. So pretty much anywhere you look on this list, you'll kind of find some sort of Middle Eastern yeah, oil money. I think five out of ten. Uh, yeah, we've, we've talked a lot on this program about how Gulf states are getting into sports, whether you want to call it sports watching or diversifying the economy. I mean, they hold, they hold you know, Abu Dhabi holds uh, a lot of the UFC fights, right? Right. And, and Saudi Arabia is bringing in WWE as well, and now those two companies are the same. I know. And then you have Saudi Arabia spent $60 million on a horse race just alone. That has a $20 million prize pool, the biggest in the world. They have a $650 million 10-year deal with Formula One to get mm, a race right. in the city of Jeddah. And then also, Qatar spent... I mean, this number is a little disputed, but $200 billion on the World Cup. So sports watching everywhere you look, um, it, it's kind of crazy, especially when you look at this year's list. And we, we have to mention before we leave this story that Messi was just suspended at, by for two weeks by PSG for his role as being an ambassador to Saudi Arabia. Basically, he ditched town. Yeah. He ditched practice to go do this ambassador trip to Saudi Arabia without telling anyone. Yeah. But apparently he makes $30 million a year from this ambassadorship. And uh, PSG is in this big title race in France. And he just did not show up to practice because he was doing tourism stuff for Saudi Arabia. Come on, Messi. You're better than that. We love you, but you can't be missing practice That's for weird. that. Yeah. Uh, all right. Final story. Uh, Toby, I have to ask you a question. If Morning Brew built housing, would you rent from them? It's not totally existential. There's a new NPR report that we saw that explained how a bunch of employers, including Disney, Meta, schools, hospitals, and even Elon Musk are building houses or entire neighborhoods for their employees to live in as the cost of housing skyrockets because there's no availability or affordability. There are a number of implications here, but one of them is that you'll be living next to your coworker. How do you feel about that? I feel great about it. I don't know. Like I would, I would live with you. I yeah. mean, you're my coworker. I do see how it's definitely a awkward and a little bit of a complicated situation because what happens if 
you leave the company? If you get fired, do you still want to live in like Tesla city? If you no longer work at Tesla, it's very interesting, but honestly, like these sound fun to me. Like, wouldn't it be fun to be surrounded by like-minded people? Like what if we had like a little business podcast work at morning brew where everyone is, you know, most people are young and along with them. If you work at another company that, you know, maybe you don't the people you don't have a lot in common with, you probably wouldn't think of it as quote unquote fun. You're right. But I mean, I would tend to think that the companies that are building these cities are doing this because they think that their employees would want to live near each other. Like it's not something with horrible mor- morale. Like you don't see better.com or whatever Herman Miller. You have up. not seen much of the world with my young it, lad. It's true. Hey, I enjoy, I, I enjoy your company. I think they're only doing this because they need workers. So say right. you're like the, the company they profiled was this medical company, medical manufacturer in a rural, I forgot what the state, but rural Midwest. There's not a lot of workers out there. There's not a lot of employees. So if you need to recruit workers, then you're going to say, okay, well, look, come out to the live in the middle of nowhere here. Um, and we're actually going to subsidize housing for you. Yeah. Yeah. That makes it a little more compelling to say, okay, I guess I'll move there and work here. And yeah, they are, they're offering below market rates. But the criticism here is that this is very kind of Mr. Beast, I cured 200 blind people kind of thing. It's yeah. like, look, we don't have a system in which people can afford houses and we need companies to provide yeah. insurance and educational opportunities and kind of stepping in where the government isn't and you got people being like i don't like this is my employer is i just go there to work you know like i don't need them to be a part of my life like this yeah don't give mr beast any ideas by the way because the next video we're gonna get i built a city to house every thousand people yeah wild that we went from google offering like free lunch as a perk to now right we got houses as like an employment perk because yeah you need workers you need to hold and retain these workers yep all right, that is our show. Uh, if you're feeling lonely, you can always reach out to us at Morning Brew Daily at morningbrew.com or call Toby's cell phone at. <laughs> don't tell my cell phone number, please. I don't have please. that on top of my head. Okay. I don't know anyone's cell phone number, good, good. not even my mom's. <laughs> Big thanks to everyone who made this show possible. The show's producer and editor is Emily Milliron. Our technical director is Uchenawa Ogu. Samantha Velas and Raymond Liu are associate producers. Billy Menino is on audio. Hair and makeup mixed up the AM PM on their alarm clock this morning. Classic mistake. <laughs> Devin Emery is our chief content officer. Our show is a production of Morning Brew. Great show today, Neil. Let's run it back tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs>